Good morning. My name is Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president of the Cato Institute. I want to thank you all for being here. Before we start, I just wanted to say with um, the shooting in the area and the fires raging, you know, we all hope that, that uh, your loved ones are all safe. Um, that's the most important thing, but also that your property is safe as well and, and that they all remain safe um, with, the, with the fires uh, going on. I'm sure it may affect attendance of some folks. I was, in, uh, I was in Russia this summer. I've been to Russia twice in the last two years, meeting with people who are fighting for liberty and opposing the regime. The regime has done a very good job enfeebling the opposition. But both of the times I went, I met with uh, a young man. His name is Mikhail Svetov. He's now one of the leading libertarians in Russia. He raises money through crowdfunding on the internet to finance trips all around the country. In the first eight months of this year before I met with him, he had visited 38 cities in Russia, lecturing people about freedom, about liberty, about libertarianism in a very engaging way. And these are lectures that can be one to 2,000 people. Um, he's had rallies that have numbered up to 30,000 people. He's been beaten up several times. In September, he was arrested. He was put in jail for 10 days uh, since released. And when he was in jail, a leftist supporter of Alexei Navalny, who's probably the most prominent opposition figure in Russia at this point, a supporter of Navalny sent Mikhail uh, a book by Noam Chomsky. And apparently, this is a very good thing to do to a libertarian who's in lockup, because Mikhail told the media after he was released that it helped him forget his predicament by allowing him to channel all his rage towards, towards Noam Chomsky. Um, but I'm so inspired by people who take such risks to expand or advance or defend liberty in places that are so inhospitable to it. And uh, I always feel a sense of tremendous responsibility that uh, if they're willing to take these risks in such difficult environments, then we really don't have any excuse. Shame on us if we can't allow the United States to remain the beacon of liberty for the world. And that's obviously what, uh, what so many of us are all about and what Cato is all about. And we're so thankful to those of you who are here who make our work possible. We have uh, supporters here who uh, support us at the $5,000 benefactor level, the $25,000 Cato Club level, uh, and even the $100,000 level of our Trenchard and Gordon Society, named after the British authors of Cato's letters. And uh, my wife is sad to report that she and I are members of this latter group. And she tells me, do you know how stupid you are? You know, because when you're giving money to a, to a, a nonprofit and they ask you to become an employee, you're supposed to say, no, I'm writing checks. I don't have to do that. But if you do acquiesce and become CEO of a nonprofit, you're then supposed to say, well, I don't have to write checks anymore because I'm all in, committed. And she says, you're such an idiot. You know, you're now doing both. But I think it's really important that our supporters know that we're eating our own cooking and how committed we are. And I think it's that sense of uh, partnership with you. Thank you, Frank. It's that sense of partnership with you that really um, leads us to want to get the most out of the resources that you uh, entrust to us. And I tell people, you have two commitments from us. 
One is that Cato will never change, and the second one is that Cato will always change. And what I mean by that seeming contradiction is that we feel a real sense of responsibility to live up to the tradition of principle, independence, and nonpartisanship that Cato has hard-earned over 40 years. And this is so important to our work and our ability to engage other audiences and to persuade them. Uh, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, visited us earlier this year for lunch. And uh, one of the things he said is that when Cato speaks on the issues that I work with, it carries so much more weight than other organizations because of your credibility, your integrity, and you, you know, your ability to persuade, and those things are inherently uh, related to our commitment to, uh, to principle. And we're gonna try to do our best. We're, no, we're not gonna try, we're gonna uphold that tradition um, as, as long as all of us are at the Institute. But what I mean by always change is uh, we want Cato to become a higher performing organization every day, and I think we're, we're accomplishing that. Um, you have our commitment that we'll make the difficult decisions that are necessary to do that. In the last year and a half, I've asked 15% of the staff to leave the Institute um, because we want to ensure that we're holding employees accountable and staff accountable for their performance and what they're accomplishing for the Institute and accomplishing for our donors. We also uh, want to hold them accountable for having a theory uh, and, a, and a plan for how the things they're doing are going to translate into the long-term change, the bending the long-term arc of ideas, but also we're applicable, you know, near-term tangible change as well. And uh, so the organization continues to be dynamic and to be changing quite a bit. I think there's emerging a great balance between that commitment, that important role of a think tank to bend the long term of our arc of ideas that's so critical to advancing freedom and also holding the long, the, the hard won victories that we do win. Um, but tangible change obviously has to, uh, has to be on the table uh, as well. Uh, we've got a lot of innovative things going on. We hired a chief digital officer this, this uh, summer, a gentleman who spent uh, a decade at Gannett, and so we have a top technology executive from a pretty heavyweight media company. We have a great digital platform. We've got millions of, of, uh, of people who consume our content online. We uh, had tens of millions of, uh, of audio downloads last year. Um, our video downloads tripled to over 10 million, but I feel that we can take things to a much higher level, and that's what we're, we're trying to accomplish, to ensure that we're getting uh, in, you know, of, of a broad portfolio of content and more engaging content into people's hands in the way that they're consuming it, whether it's mobile, uh, tablet, um, you know, desktop, print, et cetera. And I think I uh, see tremendous potential there. Um, our libertarianism.org platform continues to uh, its transition into, over the last few years, much more of a platform for, uh, for young folks. And the visionary director of that project, Aaron Powell, has really done a fantastic job. Um, he actually hired someone just to write on technology because he sees not, we don't want to just try to draw people 
uh, who are interested in policy or philosophy. We want to draw people who are interested in, in, uh, in topics that will engage them and then get them immersed in, in policy and libertarian philosophy. And uh, the books that we're producing, we're making a concerted effort and beginning to have some success getting them into high schools, getting them into college classrooms, particularly the books on economics, on, on modeling, on the Constitution. And we'll keep you posted on that. Um, so there is a lot, a lot going on, and I'm happy to report. Um, and want to thank all of you that, who, uh, who support our work for that. It's my pleasure to, uh, to introduce Tom Bell. This is really all I have to do, that five minutes of, of, uh, of introduction. You know, my grandfather, Joseph O'Neill, once told me a joke, and I'm reminded of this because I feel like the corpse at an Irish funeral. I'm uh, relatively essential to the proceedings, but I don't have to do much other than, uh, other than some introductory remarks and introducing our speakers. And the first speaker I'd like to introduce is, uh, is Tom Bell. Um, Tom is a, uh, actually he's a, he's a law professor at, at the, the Fowler School at Chapman University. He is a very thought-provoking and engaging speaker. Uh, he actually took some time off from teaching at w during which time he worked at an outfit in Washington called the Cato Institute where he was uh, our director of telecommunications and technology studies. Tom teaches all of the first-year common law courses and electives in high-tech and intellectual property at Chapman, uh, but his work's much broader than that. Uh, he's probably one of the only people you'll ever meet who's actually published a paper on the Third Amendment. You know, that's the amendment about quartering troops that we always joke that that's the, that's the only one that's actually worked out well, and the government hasn't... Uh, <laughs> hasn't taken away from us, but uh, you know, Tom's work will, will show you that they've actually found a way um, to, to violate it. But beyond that, and closer to today, today's topic, Tom's been a pioneer in the exploration of ways to escape traditional notions of government jurisdiction. You might have heard of this when he recently helped negotiate a memorandum of understanding with the government of French Polynesia to establish a future autonomous exercise in seasteading creating new jurisdictions on the seas rather than being tied to land. This opens up exciting new possibilities for competition and governance, not just the roughly 200 nation states we're familiar with, but potentially thousands of new states. In Renaissance Europe and here in the United States, competition and the ability to vote with your feet has always been one of the most powerful incentives for governments to get out of people's way and permit a wider range of freedoms. Tom's latest book, Your Next Government, from the nation state to stateless nations explores how concepts like seasteading, enterprise zones, proprietary cities, and stateless associations are upending the territorial monopoly notion of government. By bringing competition to the fundamental services of law and order, these ideas offer a tantalizing vision of a world where citizens are genuinely more like customers with all the benefits that market competition can bring. A world where if you don't like your government, you can simply choose another and take your money and property with you. So please join me in welcoming Tom Bell for what I trust is going to be uh, an eye-opening presentation. Tom? Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everybody, for showing up today to support Cato. As Peter noted, I used to work there. There are changes. Uh, well, that's news to me, but I guess as a former director of telecommunications and technology studies, I gotta say I approve. It sounds like a great plan, and I look forward to more wonderful freedom-fighting stuff from Cato. So I'm here today to tell you about uh, my new book, 
your next government with a question mark. I had to work hard for that question mark. Uh, Cambridge didn't like it. They wanted me to be the expert, no questions. And I told them that misses the whole point of the book. The book is about how the choice is going to be in you, that we get to make these choices in our government, and that's a wonderful thing. So I'd like to tell you about this today, and I'm going to do it just like in the book, um, lay out some facts, tell you about the, um, this is a little slow here, there we go, the theory, and then in good scientific method, after the facts, we get a theory and we take it into practice. As Peter noted, I've had the distinct pleasure of uh, getting out from behind my desk and my keyboard and going out in the real world and uh, talking with all kinds of people, including people in government. And um, yeah, let me tell you about some facts. Let's start out with this revolution that is sweeping through uh, the world. And it's happening from the bottom up. This is good news, actually, this revolution, not the kind of Marxist stuff. Inside out and from, <laughs> and it's worldwide. Okay, so let's start first with why we care about the law. I probably don't have to spend much time on this. I see a lot of ties in the audience. People with ties know the law matters. <laughs> Hopefully they're on the right side of it, but they've dealt with lawyers or they are lawyers and they know it matters. But just in case, you're still doubting about that. This is a picture of North and South Korea at night. And what this shows is that when you get governance wrong, and what is law, except the code that is supposed to run government, if you get governance wrong, people live in the dark literally and figuratively. Literally because they live in poverty, in darkness, they don't have electricity, that's Northern Korea. And of course, figuratively, because in North Korea they live under tyranny. And that is because of their rules. Essentially, North and South Korea are the same country, same peninsula, same climate, same people, same language, I could go on and on. It's all Korea, except they got a really bad government in the North, and a pretty good government in the South. So that goes to show graphically, if we get the rules right, we can do some really wonderful things for a lot of people. This shows something very remarkable. It's from the World Bank. Now you, if you're an academic, might note the citation at the bottom there. It's a little faint. But if you're an academic, it's a little odd because there's a citation to two places in this book the World Bank put out. The book is Sources of Wealth. And that's because the World Bank didn't create this graph. I had to create it. I had to go through their book and scrape together the data it's very simple, but they didn't do this, which I'm amazed at. I don't have a conspiracy theory for you, but I'm very happy to share this with you. This shows when you break it all down, you get all the data from this book in one place, where the wealth in our world comes from. And the first thing to note is very little of it is natural wealth. There's no money in oil and, and, and iron ore and, and timber. I mean, it's a little bit, but it's not very important. It's not even in produced stuff. I went for a walk this morning here in Beverly Hills, and there's like jewels in the windows and watches and fancy cars on the street. Puh. 18%. Stuff is not worth very much in this world. It's, it's manifest, we see it, but don't overestimate it. Skipping ahead, the real source of wealth is the rule of law. 44% of the wealth in our world is from the rule of law. Now you may wonder how that happens, and I will explain, by way of a thought experiment. Imagine we had not a neutron bomb, you might remember the neutron bombs back under, I think it was Reagan and Gorbachev. There was talk about if the Soviets invade West Eastern Europe will explode these neutron bombs in the air above the tanks, and it will kill the people in the tanks, but leave the tanks and the buildings and the bridges. It's terrible, but it's more humane than leaving a, a nuclear wasteland. Okay, imagine we have not a neutron bomb, but a law bomb. And we explode it in the, law above, uh, in the air above, say, New York City, and people wake up the next day, and there's no law. And what happens to the wealth in New York City? It's basically zero. 
there's basically no wealth in New York City. You may still have your jewels in your car. What are you going to do with them? Thugs are going to break down your door right away. Well, you better get out of town quickly. You probably won't come back. Or if you wake up, you say, well, I'm going to go to the office. Oh, wait, I don't have to go to the office. I don't have a contract. What am I doing today? You will not be able to run your life without the law. New York City will be reduced to a vacant wasteland, and that's thanks to the rule of law. All right, so the good news is that there's this revolution happening. Law is very important. The good news is there's this revolution happening from the bottom up, inside out, worldwide, and let's look at some facts. This is, or was, there it is. This is the percentage of US residents in basically private communities, homeowners associations, common interest developments, uh, there's other types, cooperative residential communities. And basically you see it's been going up and up and up. And this is actually people opting out of local government. They're saying, well, you know, my local public pool, the, not that good, the parks are kind of dicey. I'm gonna pony up some more money, still gonna pay my full property taxes, but I'm gonna have a private park, private pool for my kids where I can trust they'll be safe. And there's other things, of course, you know, I want my homeowners, the value of my home not to plummet because somebody builds a purple house next door. Homeowners associations, they're huge. This is Highland Park, Colorado. I think it's the largest HOA in um, the world, or at least the United States. There's actually some great big private communities in China. A little hard to get that data. But in the United States, <laughs> no, actually, seriously, a lot of private communities in China. China has done a lot in this area. I'm not gonna sneer at China. I use their uh, examples a lot in this book. In fact, I will credit special jurisdictions, a subject of my book, with lifting China out of abject poverty. That was really what saved them. But back to this, back to America. Has over 30,000 homes, over 90,000 residents. It's got schools, parks, businesses. That is a city, but it's all privately owned and operated. Here's another one. Co-op city in the Bronx, the largest cooperative residential community in the United States. You've probably heard about co-ops in New York City because you've heard about these fancy co-ops on, on Central Park. True, those are co-ops. They are at the creme de la creme levels of society, the, the, the way to live together of choice. But it also, this co-op city is very middle class. And since we're you know, friends of liberty here, I will note they did get a government subsidy. It's not like pure libertarianism, but there you go. And it's got three shopping centers, everything you see in that picture, privately owned. Six schools, 15 houses of worship. Yes, there are roads. Building roads is the simplest thing in the world. <laughs> we don't need government for that. Uh, so all this is privately owned and operated, middle class, over 55,000 residents. Where I grew up, that's a city. <laughs> In New York City, I guess it's like a neighborhood, but still. And that is private government. But it gets bigger than that. This is Cake City in Saudi Arabia. It's actually a computer-generated image. So don't be fooled. This is what they foresee. But they've started. It's going to be 2 million people large, about the size of Washington, D.C., owned privately. You can actually live there and own shares of the town that you live in. And a really neat thing about these private communities in Saudi Arabia is they are places where women can go around without veils because they're private. Those religious beliefs are working for the government. And so you close your front gate to them and you can say, yeah, take your whips somewhere else. We treat people with respect here. So yay uh, for private communities in Saudi Arabia. So those are private communities, and they're small, but they're getting bigger, 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 bigger. Let's talk, I'll talk about bigger projects in a minute, but let's talk about how this is happening inside out. It's happening inside out because it happens with the help of government. This is not one of those revolutions where the president is behind barricaded doors fending off the protesters. These programs come from the government because, well, there's a lot in the book about that, but let's just use some examples here. Now, Hong Kong, we know, was not started in 1841 by the choice of the local Chinese. It was kind of shoved down the throat 
of the Chinese by the English with their gunboats. But you know, after that, they made their peace with it and it flourished. And this is Hong Kong's growth over 34 years. And the lesson in this, this set of images is governments do this because it works. Even government agents will at some margin increase liberty if it does the things that they really care about. And what do they really care about? Things like tax revenue, things like population growth, more people to govern, things like a big prominent success like this. You want to be the politician who can say, over 25 years, look what we did in Shenzhen. Or, to use an even shorter period, Dubai. So Dubai had this problem. They wanted to invite a lot of investors to come to the Middle East. They wanted to basically have the, the, the city of London set up a branch office in, in, in Dubai. Problem is that Sharia law doesn't allow interest on loans. That doesn't play so well with London bankers. So in Dubai, they said, huh, well, tell you what, we're going to import some English law so that you can charge interest on your loans. And there is in Dubai now at the International Financial Center this little kind of pocket. It's not quite a pocket of English law, but at least it's not a pocket of Sharia law. And so it's been a huge success. 13 years, huge growth, and that's because what? They got the rules right. In this case, the government itself said, huh, you know, our local laws aren't very good. Let's bring in some laws that work. And so they imported the laws, big success. I want to see more of that, and I'm going to try to make that happen. And there it is. And this is happening all over the world. Countries all over the world are saying, hey, let's do this. And you can see here the number of countries with SEZs, special economic zones, or similar special jurisdictions. There's two lines because um, so it depends on, you know, I'm an academic. I get into the numbers. It depends on how you count these zones. The very conservative count says there's at least over 4,000 of these in the world today, maybe almost 10,000 of these special zones. And by the way, most of these are privately run and operated, not all, but most of them, and the most successful ones. Why is that? I don't know if you can see all the data here. It's not super important. If you can see the numbers, the numbers simply show, wow, there's a lot more private than public SEZs. Why is that? The World Bank studied this, and they said, uh, sorry, I'm not getting these on my display up here, so let me go back. Okay, the World Bank has said, yeah, why are there so many private zones? Because they work. The, the World Bank looked at this and said they're less expensive to develop and operate, and they yield, yield better economic results. So we have this phenomenon where government agents are going, huh, you know, we need to do better at this governance stuff. Let's bring in the pros. And they do it, and it works. Well, I remember when I was looking at Cato, that would have been a pretty exciting prospect. And indeed, it should be exciting. When I started writing this book, I didn't know about all this. I sat down and did the research, and my jaw dropped, and I thought, I got to tell my friends who like liberty about this. This is good news. Yeah, once for uh, once, you got a libertarian saying, you know, this is good news coming down the pike. I, got, I think the future is pretty good, friends. Let's talk about worldwide. This happened worldwide. This is the percentage of countries now with these SEZs. It's pretty much getting up to 100. Yes, it's flattening out, and any biologist will tell you, oh, I recognize that curve. That's the S-shaped curve you see any time a new species takes over a, a fresh environment. Like you have, a, say, a volcanic island, and it's blasted by an eruption, and there's nothing on it but lava, and then some little plants start popping up, and then, I don't know, pigeons or whatever shows up. And eventually, they take up almost all the space on the island, but not all of it. That's where we are, these SEZs. They may reach every country. Hey, we're over 70%. I think that's pretty good. There's Cake City again. That's one example. But there's other places. There's Dubai. I just wanted to give you the context. A lot of this is happening in, in the Middle East. I have theories about that. Um, won't get into it now. This is uh, another country that's really it's got the most radical uh, special economic zone program on paper in the world. 
It's Honduras. They have there this ZEDE program, which uh, I talk about in the book. I've been to Honduras, met with the um, uh, authors of the ZEDE plan there, and I'm still working there. Um, and all I can say is we're making progress. But when and if they get this up and running, it's an amazing program. These zones will be areas of Honduras where the government has said, private developers, please come. Pick where you want to build this. Come up with the governance plan. By the way, make sure that you use common law. They actually, in the statute, call it Anglo-Saxon law. It's kind of charming. But it's a civil law country. But they're saying, they have said, we want Hong Kong and Central America. What made Hong Kong work? Part of it must have been the common law. Well, we want that in Central America. But you know, we don't really know how to do that. So private developers, come in and bring your legal system with you. And that's how I got hired to do this stuff. They said, uh, Tom, we need a legal system. Can you help? And I said, oh boy, can I? So uh, that's Honduras. Uh, this didn't come out super well. Good, yours display is better than mine. This is another Saudi project, the latest. You can see there, um, there's Dubai, just giving you some context in case your ge geography is a little slow today. And there's Cake City. And then up to the northwest is Neom. Neom. And um, nobody's really sure exactly what's going to happen there. But man, is it big. It's twice the size of Connecticut. And it is, again, one of these private Sorry, this one's not private. This was set, by, set aside by the prince. In Saudi Arabia, it's a little hard to tell what's private and what's public because, you know, monarchy. But um, this is the prince's favorite latest project. He's even started, he's built one of his palaces there, so he'll have perhaps a place to retreat. Hmm, don't know. But uh, yeah, they have this planned. They say it is one uh, plan, they plan it as one of the largest capital projects in the world, and they plan to have more robots than humans. There's not much known about this. We watch videos, there's videos available, and when you watch it, there's a lot of people cavorting in the sun. Women running around without veils, perhaps that's you know a dog whistle. Um, we're not sure what's gonna happen there, but knowing Saudi Arabia, it'll be big. You might be wondering, uh, where's America in all this? Actually, the United States of America has a lot of special economic zones. I didn't know about these until I did the research on the book. In America, they're not, you know, they're not like super amazing, but they're everywhere. They're called foreign trade zones. And these are areas typically at ports, maybe airports if they're connected to international uh, venues. And in these places, there's no import uh, fees or, or customs. You can bring in stuff from out of the country and leave it, say, at the port of Los Angeles. As long as you leave it behind their chain link fences, it doesn't count as in America for purposes of customs and duties. So you can bring in stuff, you can do transshipment, bring in a big cargo container boat full of bikes and then put it on little boats and send it to you know, Mexico, Colombia, Canada, and it's never entered the United States for your purposes. You can even bring it into the port, add brakes and paint the frames and then ship it out again and you don't have to pay customs and duties. So these are all over the place um, and uh, yeah, they've been a great success for, for the United States. Let's talk about some theory here. I'll go quickly through this. This is kind of, kind of egg-headed. Uh, it's in the book. I won't dwell with it here, but I don't have nice pictures of cities for you here. Basically, the theory is quite simple. My theory of governance is increased consent. I think that's one thing we can all agree about. I did study philosophy. I'm not just you know, making this up as a lawyer. And I noticed when I studied philosophy, and then when I got at Cato too, because this is common in the libertarian movement. It's common everywhere. People tend to think of consent in black and white. It's binary. You either consent, yes, or you don't consent, you say no. And getting in the law, I realized, man, that's just not the case. That's economist thinking. Love my economists, but they see the world in a binary way. Why? Because they're fortunate enough to deal with consensual transactions. When you're an economist, everything is either, oh, you made a sale, we got a price supply chart, or we don't. 
Lawyers deal with all these unconsensual transactions. Lawyers are very familiar with transactions where you go, whoa, that was really not consensual, or we're not sure if that was consensual. That guy was unconscious when they rendered aid. Do they get paid for that? That's an interesting question. It turns out the common law has lots of answers in that area, and I borrowed from that to build this scale of consent. And my friends, here we go. This is the money line from the theory part of the book. I am going to boldly claim I have in my book solved the problem that political philosophers have been banging their heads on desks about for centuries. It's very simple, friends, in my view. The degree to which a government is justified co-varies with the amount of consent that it evokes from those it governs. And because consent is a matter of degree, you can answer questions like this, very popular around dorm room tables equipped with beer. Did we consent to the nation state? You know, people bang their heads. Oh, yes, no, I don't know. And the answer is simply not much. It's not yes or no. You can say, well, kind of a little bit maybe. And where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you in a confusing kind of gray place. Welcome to lawyer world. Not undergraduate libertarian world. Undergraduate libertarian world is easy. Taxation is theft. Adult lawyer world is, it's complicated. So that's a little disappointing if you want to brandish a banner and go burn down a building, which you shouldn't be doing anyhow probably, young people. But it also is helpful. It's hopeful. Because if consent is a question of degree, we can climb this ladder of consent and make our governments better piece by piece. It's really a very Cato-friendly doctrine. It says, get in the mix, find that margin, and have revolution at the margin. We're just gonna take little steps towards liberty. We're gonna get as far as we can. That's the philosophy. All right, let's talk about practice. I'll wrap it up here with some stories from the field. I so enjoyed writing this book because I got a chance to tell people what I've been up to, not just footnotes and typing, but my clients, well, for the last couple of years, they've come to Chapman and they've said, we want this Bell guy to work on our projects. Here's some money. Have him teach less. I only have one class a year, and we're going to take him. And then they send me to places to do work, and it's interesting work, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. I've been working in Honduras. I already told you about that. I can't say much more except we're making progress. So I'm just going to leave that there and say, get the book. There's a whole chapter in the book. It's most people's favorite chapter. It's called Stories of the Sort Ordinarily Recounted Over Drinks. Stories of the sort ordinarily recounted over drinks. When you get together with people and you just kind of spin yarns or actually tell truths which are colorful about what you've been up to. So I did some work on Liberland. Again, it's in the book. I just want to, if you haven't heard about Liberland, you just got to hear about it. It's a funny, great, interesting story. And that little patch of land, that little red dot between Croatia and Serbia is where allegedly Liberland exists. I say allegedly because the Croatians are not fully on board with this. And, and the reason that is there, uh, it's a little complicated. I'll, I'll say it once. If you don't get it, I got some copies of the book. You can, I got some spare copies. You can buy it and you read it. But basically, Croatia wanted the old river channel of the Danube. They still say the border between Croatia and Serbia is the old Danube. And the old Danube goes way into Serbia and a little bit into Croatia. And Serbia says, no, border is current Danube. So they have this fight. It's the Balkans. They fight over borders all the time. And so Liberland is a place neither country wanted. Serbia said, no, border is new Danube. And that's on the other side of the Danube. Serbia says, that's not Serbia. And Croatia, to take them at their word, says, no, border is old Danube. And this is not in the right place for Croatia's claim of borders now. So basically, neither country 
is claiming that land. So this guy from Czechoslovakia, a libertarian politician in parliament, uh, Jed Linka, said, well, I'll take it. <laughs> so he went down there and he planted a flag and he said, this is liberal land. And then the Croatians came and they kicked him out. And he said, what are you doing? It was him and some other people. I'm simplifying. The Croatians, so they, people tried to go into this spot after Viet told him about it. And the Croatians would arrest him and drag him out. What are you doing, Croatia? First, they said, when the people came from Croatia, do I have a pointer on this? People, I can't, no, that's not going to work. So when people came from Croatia, they said, you left Croatia without permission. And they said, okay, we'll come in from the riverside. They came in from the riverside, and Croatia, riverboats came and grabbed our people, threw them off the beach, threw them in the boats, and took them to jail again. Why did you arrest them this time? You entered Croatia without permission. So basically, the Croatians are being logically inconsistent, and we litigated, and it's a long story, but basically, Balkan justice is not what one might hope. <laughs> Just leave it at that. And here's, uh, and Peter mentioned, uh, French Polynesia, I'm sitting there, and this is, uh, the president, by the way, of French Polynesia is right there in the front. He's wearing a, a, a floral shirt. That's how they roll in French Polynesia. That's at the Palais Presidential in the Papete. And uh, there, there were, like, guards around, guys in, you know, uniforms at the presidential palace, but they didn't look much more uh, scary than the, you know, the people who work here at the hotel. And they had chickens wandering around the courtyards. That's my kind of president. Anyhow, so we made this MOU to uh, French Polynesia, and uh, the, the, some of you, if you're, I don't know if, you ha if we have any in this crowd, if you're a hardcore seasteader, some of our seasteader friends were disappointed we were even talking to a country. Seasteading, the idea is, we're going to get out of here. We're going to go to the open oceans and be free. What are you doing with the country? And the seasteaders, their philosophy is, we're going to start small like a minnow. We're going to start small in protected waters, legally and physically, and slowly we'll make our way out to the open ocean. I wish I could say great things about that French Polynesian project. It turns out French Polynesia is basically run by the French. And despite the fact, as I've had occasion to remind them many times in my discussions with them, that the national motto of France begins with the word liberté, that comes before égalité and fraternité. They don't seem to remember what that word means in France. And they're, they've kind of made the French Polynesians ignore it, too. And lastly, I'll tell you about another thing I'm working on, ULEX. It's an open source legal system, and it's flag free. And this is what some of my clients are interested in. We did a fundraiser. We raised enough funds to do some fun research with ULEX. We're going to be setting up some test cases in private courts and making sure the legal system works. And I'm running a site on GitHub. It's basically we treat this like code. GitHub is for computer code. I'm one of the few lawyers on GitHub because I treat ULEX like computer code. Can't say much more about it here. This is my newest client, Wireline. They're doing the same stuff online. So now, this is nice, I don't have to bargain with government officials. Because if you want governance online, you just hit send and you got it. And Wireline, well, I'll read this to you because I'm not sure I understand it either. Wireline is the decentralized network and registry for serverless cloud, com cloud computing. And it goes on in multi-syllable words that, frankly, few of us understand. Anyhow, they're doing great stuff, and I'm glad to help them. And let's wrap it up so I can have your questions. So you've listened to me tell you about the facts. This is kind of slow. I didn't know it was going to format like this. And the theory and the, guess what, practice of your next government. And with that, I'll take your questions. Thank you. <laughs>